Hebrews chapter 11, that great hall of faith, gives a sense of continuity in history, that there are many who have been before us, and the Lord tarries is coming, many who will come after us. This past Wednesday, my wife and I were in Oxford in the UK, and Wednesday evening, we attended Evensong in Christ Church Cathedral. Founded in 1546, almost 500 years ago, I found it very moving that for five centuries, every week, on Wednesday night, without break, this has been read and responded to by everybody in attendance. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the God, the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come again to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost and the Holy Universal Catholic Church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, and the resurrection of the body, life everlasting. We look forward to his return and wait for it daily. Amen. So for almost five centuries, the stones of that old cathedral have soaked in the reading of the Word of God in different forms and that creed that I just read. It is a reminder that in history that we do stand on those who go before us, and though, of course, there are some other theological challenges with regards to that cathedral, it was nonetheless a moving experience. One of the things, however, that did grieve me as I was in attendance was that in all the beautiful liturgy and worship, and aside from that creed, that much of the scripture that was given was clouded and actually concealed by much tradition and pomp. And so as we understand God's word, and even what makes Reformation Tradition and doctrine as we stand in the line of those who go before, specifically in the last 500 years, is a centrality of God's Word and not just hearing it and not just being involved in liturgy, but actually understanding it. So you walk away and say, this is what I understood the Word of God to say and mean and here's why and how it applies to my life. It gives me understanding of who God is. It gives me understanding of His character so that I might have a dynamic and ongoing relationship with him. So this morning, we're going to be looking at God and who he is and how he parents his children. Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 3. Consider him who endured from sinners in hostility, such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood, and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? And if you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, 
and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. May God bless the reading of his word. Heavenly Father, we come before you again and ask that you would again make the word live to us. And I pray that you would show in me, show in us those areas. Discipline our hearts and lives into holiness in obedience to you. And in Jesus' name we pray again. Amen. As we read through this text, I'm struck by the parental overtones that are inherent in this text. Father-son relationship between God and the believer. And so in that parental theme, we're going to unpack this text again so we have understanding. As we come into the text, it is important to note that words are not inert. Words are not inert. They carry with them preconceived meanings and baggage. If I give you a word, you probably come to that word again with some preconceived notion of what it is and what it means. And as a parent with your children, you want to help them understand those meanings and the full picture as best as you can so that they can walk away in life with a clear understanding of what is true and what is right. If I say the word gender, giving our social realities, you may come to that word with different baggage or understandings or maybe it becomes a political discussion. And yet when we understand gender, we see that back in the creation of Genesis 1, that God created man, God created woman, and that in those objective defined roles that God has defined and we have no right to redefine, that through those God created roles, there is glory and satisfaction and to redefine them invites self-destruction. Slavery. There's a historical one. When I say slavery, we may think of the slavery that plagued this nation. A slavery system that was built on ethnic prejudice and that slavery existed simply because of the color of one's skin. A horrible travesty on history in our country. It's also important to understand that that word slavery, that as we look at it in Scripture, we cannot import our current understanding back onto what slavery was in Scripture, not defending that by any means whatsoever, but ethnic slavery of the 18, 17, 18, 1900s, the slavery that existed during the Roman times and even the Old Testament times was geopolitical, economic. It wasn't based on ethnicity. It was based on who was conquered. And you could actually rise out of slavery, and we have evidence of those who rose out of slavery and become governors in Roman cities. So a word that carries with a lot of meaning that we have to understand and dissect fully even across history. If I say the word taxes, you say amen too much. And yet the Bible says taxes are a good thing. Otherwise, why would Jesus say pay them? Now, we can debate over how much and how little. And matter of fact, to that, vote. Pray for those in power. And honor those in power, regardless of the political party. And that's not a political statement or a political talk. It's just simply that if you are a Christian, the Bible says pay taxes. Pray for those in authority and honor them. Amen? All right. Marriage. Is marriage just a social contract? No, the Bible says marriage is 
a picture of Christ with His church. It's a word that has much more than what we have attached to it. Submission. When we hear the word submission, what we hear is suppression. And if you're a woman that is exacerbated historically, societally, even within the church, traditionally, submission inherently carries a negative aspect or to submit to those under authority. Rather, however, Scripture says submission is a recognition of roles and authority and is something that Jesus Christ himself does to the Father and the Holy Spirit does to the Son and the Father. Tithing. Got to do it. Instead, of Scripture says that giving sacrificially, way beyond even what the traditional understanding of the tithe is. It's an act of worship. It's, it's a part of our, our regular responsibility as a Christian and being attached to a people, it's being attached to a local expression of God's people in the local church. And giving sacrificially is something that we're to be a part of. Holiness. Just a checklist, right, of do's and don'ts. No, holiness is what God is. Holiness is God's beauty. And to be holy is to be like God. Grace. You know what grace is? Grace is sin doesn't matter and God will always forgive because he doesn't really care about sin. So says much of the evangelical church. What is grace really? Grace is favor undeserved. And grace is something that has been given to you that came at a great cost to God himself. And so we are called to strive to live a life worthy of the grace that we receive. Not to get grace, but to live a life worthy of the grace that's already been given to us. We need to understand these words. We need to understand them from a biblical perspective. And as we read this text in Hebrews chapter 12, I am struck by that word that is used multiple times, that word discipline. Not as a noun, not as I have discipline in the self-control, but rather discipline as a verb, as in to discipline your child or God disciplining you. And as we come to this word, let's be honest, it's a negative word for the most part in our minds. It's a negative word. We, 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 we've struck it from our parenting. We don't punish our children. We don't discipline our children. And by the way, I believe the Bible teaches that you're supposed to spank those God-loved sinful little ones. <laughs> discipline. And we live in an age where you do not discipline because that restricts their growth. You know what? You're right. It restricts their growth into greater sin. Discipline. We see it as a negative, anti-authority. It's restrictive. And, and, and if your father or your mother were harsh or abusive, the concept of discipline is even exacerbated as a negative aspect. So we have to come to this word and, and, and actively dislodge the notions and the preconceived ideas we have about what this is. Now, what is the biblical understanding of this word? How do we understand it in relation to our Heavenly Father? And here's a key question for the morning. How does our Heavenly Father parent His children? How does our Heavenly Father parent His children? Now, before we answer that, let's remember where we're at. 
Hebrews 1 through 10, those 10 chapters have been talking about the worthiness, loveliness, and the superiority of Jesus. Hebrews 11, examples of faith who look to Jesus. Hebrews 12 and 13, where we're at currently, now shifts to exhortation and instruction with verses 1 and 2 of chapter 12 to run the race, brother and sister. And then in the passage that we come to right now, it's you do not run the race alone. He treats you, God, as his own. And here's the big idea for this morning. The big idea for this passage is that God treats you as beloved sons. God treats you as beloved sons. Ladies, please do not get tripped up on the masculine term. Men have to reconcile being called the bride of Christ, and you are sons. And both of them have theological understanding. The bride of Christ, that we are materially and spiritually united with the Son, never to be broken, that sacred marital covenant that is accomplished at the cross. Sons. Because sons are the full inheritors of the Father's estate. They bear his name. And so, brothers and sisters, you are sons if you've trusted in Christ. The big idea here is that God treats you as beloved sons. How does he treat you as beloved sons? Five things this morning. How does he parent you? How does he treat you as beloved sons? Number one, he gives you an example. He gives you an example to follow. Parenting 101, people say, I just want to know how to parent my kids. Here's Parenting 101. Be a good example. It's not rocket science. Your kids will see who you are, what you love, the passions you pursue, the way you talk, and they'll see if you're the same person at home that you're at church or in the workplace. Examples are powerful. The power of examples and parenting cannot be uh, overstated. What do your children see you do? What, what, what are your passions? How do you treat your spouse? And singles, grandparents, what is your example among your friends or your family? God gives us an example because he knows we need an example. We need someone to look to, and he gives us that example in the person of Jesus. If you remember in verse 1 and 2, it says, looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And then in verse 3 here, it says, consider him. Consider him. Consider Christ. It's a middle imperative in the Greek. The imperative, this is not optional. Look at Jesus. You want to run this race well? Look at Jesus. The middle voice has the emphasis of you, yourself, not someone else for you, you, yourself. You need to make the decision to consider him, to look at his example, and follow after him. Your church can't make it for you. Your parents can't make it for you. Your friends can't make it for you. You, yourself, consider imperative. He who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. He endured the cross, the beatings of an illegal trial, the mockery of the crowd shouting crucify him, the mockery of the soldiers and the scribes and the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, 
the Sadducees, there at the cross saying, if you're God, save yourself. He endured such hostility against himself. And we are to consider his example and how he walked through those pains and sufferings for this purpose. So that, you see that? So that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Now, why is he saying this? Why is the writer of Hebrews saying this? Because the audience of Hebrews, guess what? They're weary and they're faint-hearted. The struggle of sin that he goes on to talk about here in verse 4 is, it's hard. The battle doesn't cease. William Gurnall, a Puritan, wrote, Lord, I am hunted with temptation. Either you must pardon it or I am condemned. Kill it or I will be a slave to it. Take me into the bosom of your love for Christ's sake. Castle me in the arms of your everlasting strength. Oh, I love how the Puritans write. Castle me in the arms of your everlasting strength. It is in your power to save me from or give me up into the hands of my enemy. I have no confidence in myself or any other. Into your hands I commit my cause and myself. I rely on you and no other. That's William Gurnall writing 400 years ago about the battle with sin that the writer of Hebrews wrote about 2,000 years ago with the same battle. And as we, as we run this race, we get weary. We get faint-hearted. We lose the will to fight. We're physically, emotionally exhausted. The writer knows this. He says, look to Jesus. You must. Consider him who ran the race. Now in your struggle, he says, you have not resisted yet to the point of shedding your blood. None of you have been martyred yet. The battle hasn't taken you to death yet, but it may. The battle may take it that far. I want to be honest with you, the writer says. It's that serious. It's that profound. And here is good parenting understanding from God to us. He's being very clear and honest with the realities of life. The battle with sin could become so angry and hostile that it requires great personal sacrifice, even death. You see, Jesus, our example, resisted and battled sin, never giving in. He battled perfectly, and the battle exacted blood and even his death. And that is how far Jesus took the struggle. And we are called to take up the same cross not for our own salvation, not for someone else's salvation, but the same path where we are walking and we're fighting the fight even if it exacts a blood requirement. This is total devotion. Now you may ask and say, but, but how? I cannot fight this fight alone. So number one, God gives you an example. He calls you to a high standard. And then number two, he doesn't leave you alone. Number two, God wars for you, and God wars with you. God wars for you, and God wars with you. Before we talk about this concept of discipline, I want to paint out this perspective so we go into the concept of discipline with the right understanding of what God does do for us. God wars for you and with you. And a good parent fights for their child and with their child. 
Now, some of you, all you do is fight for your children, and they never learn to fight for themselves. You need to be careful. As parents, we do fight for our children, and we fight with our children. Now, some of you need to actually get in the fight with your child or grandchild or even, yes, your adult child and say, how can I fight this battle with you in prayer? Let's talk about these things. God fights the battle for us, but he also fights it with us. And I want to give you just 10 brief things. I know you're like, how is that going to be brief? We're going to try. 10 ways in which God wars for us and with us against sin. And number one, the very first one is salvation, the cross. This is where God wars for us on our behalf, destroys the power and the penalty of sin, and eventually the presence of sin. It's what the cross does. It's what Christ did for us on the cross. And this is the first step. And none of the other nine can be set in motion, God warring for you and with you, unless salvation is first in place. Richard Elaine, another Puritan, called salvation a wonderful lopsided trade. He said, what a blessed exchange have you made with me to give me yourself an infinite sum for myself, a mere nothing. The blessed lopsided trade of grace. Dane Ortland wrote, God didn't meet us halfway. He refused to hold back, cautious in assessing our worth. No, that is not his heart. He and his son took the initiative on terms of grace and grace alone, in defiance of what we deserved, when we, despite our smiles and civility, were running from God as fast as we could, building our own kingdoms, loving our own glory, lapping up the fraudulent pleasures of the world, and repulsed by the beauty of God, and shutting up our ears at His calls to come home. It was then, in the hollowed-out horror of that revolting existence, the prince of heaven bade his adoring angels farewell. It was then that he put himself into the murderous hands of these very rebels and a divine strategy planned from eternity past to rinse muddy sinners clean and hug them into his own heart despite their squirmy attempt to get free and scrub themselves clean. Christ went down into death, voluntary endurance of unutterable anguish. And while we applauded, we couldn't have cared less. We were weak sinners and enemies. But Jesus did all of this to make us sons. Salvation. God warring for us to ransom a people for himself, number one. Number two, he is an advocate. He stands on our behalf. That's what we've been talking about in Hebrews eternally and covenantally guarding us as his ransomed treasure. Number three, he has sealed us. Paul says in Ephesians 1 that the Holy Spirit has marked us as his own possession and no one can take us away from him. Number four, he's regenerated us, given us a new nature so that whereas before we could never war against sin on our own, now with a new nature and the indwelling spirit, we, for the first time, have the power to war against sin. And when the battle gets hard, number five, he's given us 
access, Romans 5 says, access into the throne room of the Father, the courtrooms of heaven, to make appeals of God. Help me. That access was barred before, but now through Christ it is open. Number six, he's given us his presence in the Holy Spirit. Number seven, he has given us his Holy Spirit as, his te- as a teacher. He instructs us and informs us through his word, the Bible. And the Holy Spirit is not this ambiguous force and presence that we need to have a feeling or some sort of special emotive experience under the stars or at a sunset. Hey, those are sweet, but the Holy Spirit speaks clearly. You know how? Through the Bible that he himself authored. It's not a mystery. The Holy Spirit wrote the Bible. You want to know what the Holy Spirit is saying to you? Read the Bible. It's not an ambiguous, soul-searching mystery. Read God's Word. Pray for His illumination, and the Holy Spirit will bring forth His truth through His Word. He's also given us a helper, the Holy Spirit himself, who helps us, upholds us, instructs us, convicts us, empowers us, intercedes for us against both spiritual and physical threats that would assault our hearts and souls. Number nine, the Old Testament especially describes Yahweh, God, as a warrior. And Exodus 14, as they were standing before the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army was closing behind. Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You only have to be silent. Joshua 10, 14 says the Lord fought for Israel. Joshua 23, 3. It is for the Lord your God who has fought for you. In 2 Chronicles 20, when King Jehoshaphat is looking at the armies arrayed before him, Jehaziel, son of Zechariah, son of Benaiah, son of Jael, son of Mataniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph, in the midst of the assembly, he stands up and he says, Listen, all Judah inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord God to you, do not be dismayed at this great horde, for the battle is not yours, it is God. You see, we have a God who fights for us and with us. This race of faith is not just left on your own. It's like, good luck, I'll see you in heaven. Hope you do well. God has set us on this race. And then he runs with us every step of the way. That's why he never leaves you nor forsakes you, Scripture says. Now, if you wonder at his ability to war on your behalf, then go home this week and read Job 26, 6 to 14. Go home this week and read Job 26, 6 to 14 and see how God uncovers death, unmasks Satan, orders the cosmos, governs the physics of the universe and the chemistry of nature itself. He divides the invisible universe. His omnipotence quakes the heavens. Weather is developed, sent forth, and dissipated 
at his word. He is the destroyer of the enemy. And if all of that sounds grand beyond the scope of our imagination, Job says, behold, these are simply but the outskirts of his ways. How small a whisper do we hear of him, but the thunder of his power, who can understand? All of that, it's just but an itty-bitty tiny bit of his omnipotence. And that God fights for you and with you. Number 10, he fights for you and wars with you as your father, as your Abba. Instead of a wrathful judge, you see, there's been a disposition change because Jesus took the anger on the cross. Now the father looks at you the way he looks at Jesus. And that, that just astounds me every time I say it. And I'm going to say it again and again until it's something that you know I'm going to say when I get to this type of a topic. John 17 says that because of who we are in Christ, God the Father does not love you as a sinner. He loves you now the way that God himself the Father loves God himself the Son. That's a disposition change. He loves you as that Father. He has a particular affection for you, an affection and love that you share with Jesus himself. You've been given access to the inner Trinitarian love and fellowship of God. And you're under the guardianship and covering of the Father of the universe as his child. So that's who your father is, and that's who your God is. That brings us to number three. This is the third point. I just gave you ten points. This is the third major point. Number one. He gives us an example. Number two, he wars for us and wars with us. Number three, your heavenly father loves you so much that he disciplines you. He disciplines you. Your father loves you so much that he disciplines you. I said earlier that a good parent fights for their child and with their child. Even allowing them, and I add this, even allowing them to experience hardship and suffering so as to instruct them fully. Now, in our, in our day and age, there is a trend, you know, the lawnmower mom, the lawnmower dad. Son, go out there and mow the lawn. You're not going to do it quite the way that I want it, and I don't want you to get hurt, so just walk behind me as I mow it for you. We're going to pave their way. Make sure that there's no bumps, few turns, and few hardships and sufferings. What you have prepared them for is a world that does not exist. Parenting is loving them, fighting for them, fighting with them, and sometimes allowing them to fall and say, now I love you and I'm here with you, but what do we learn from this? Don't run into the road. Don't jump off the trampoline that's six feet high. It hurts. Don't run into that wall. You will lose. <laughs> Your Heavenly Father loves you so much that He disciplines you. And this is a discipline that is corrective. It's not punitive. It's developmental. It's corrective. It's educative. 
Verse 5, have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly. You see that? My son. Remember who you are. Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord, listen, disciplines the one he, what? Loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the Father does not discipline? If you do not, take in, take in the logic here, if you do not love your child enough to discipline them, you're actually not treating them as your child. You hear that? If you're not willing to lovingly discipline your child, you're not actually treating them as your child. You're not taking responsibility and love them enough to guide them. Because here's what's going on. In Hebrews, the people are experiencing hardship and they're weary and they're faint-hearted and the enemy means it to destroy them. But God, what the enemy meant for evil, God means for good and uses those difficulties, even sufferings, to refine us and to wean us off of sin and teach us to rely on God. Don't despise when by God's grace, he points out in your life some sin. It's a grace of God when he says, I love you so much that I don't want that sin to reside in you. I have something better for you. I want you to experience more than that. Endure. Let discipline have its full effect, verse 7. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. Think of an earthly father that truly loves his child. He will correct, instruct, reprove in order to refine them. Those who are not disciplined are not sons. That's what Scripture says. Good fathers disciplined and are respected. How much more the Father of Spirits, a very unique phrase, the Father of Spirits, not used very many places in Scripture. This actually might be the only place. I'll have to look that up again. But it's a very unique term of God. Not Father of Spirits, capital S, Father of Spirits, small s. Meaning, you have a Father of flesh, a physical Father. How much more does your, if your physical father is doing his best to love you and to guide you and to refine you, if he's a truly loving, good father, with his limited perspective and knowledge, how much more the father of your immortal being, your spirit, who is not inhibited by sin or a partial picture, knows exactly what you need, knows exactly the amount of struggle that you can take and what is needed to refine you, how much more can we trust him that regardless of this battle now and this struggle now, he who wars for me and with me has a purpose through it to refine me? That's hard truth. Do we believe that even the hardships of life under the loving hand of God, he loves you so much, he is going to discipline you. And number four, God works for what is best for you. Not what you think is best, but what is best for you. Verse 10. For the earthly fathers disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he, God, disciplines us for our good that we might share in his holiness. 
He disciplines us and refines us and even corrects and reproves us and rebukes us because we are his sons, because he loves us, and because he doesn't want us just to be happy. He wants us to be holy. And in that holiness, we are truly happy. God works for what is best for you. A parent, a good parent seeks what is best. Not for what is good, not for what is expedient, not for what is convenient, but what is best. It might be good for your kid to play football, basketball, or soccer. I'm all for sports and what it teaches. But if that takes the place of being with God's people and prayer and the reading of God's word, you are trading something good instead of for what is best. Make sure your priorities are in order. That which is eternal. What is the point of them getting a scholarship to an Ivy League school or even Oxford University and they lose their faith? Better they work without a degree in a basic job but love Jesus and gain eternity. Parents, grandparents, church, get our priorities straight. Parents, even as our Heavenly Father, parents, you. Now, parenting is a long-term investment. And in verse 11, it says, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness by those who have been trained by it. And sometimes we're like, God, this is not very pleasant. This does not feel good. And sometimes when you tell your child no, they won't like you for it. Are you going to be their friend or are you going to be their God-given parent? There's a difference. And we pray that at some point you become friends. Our Father, who is our friend, puts us through discipline, and it doesn't always feel pleasant. But do you not remember that he's treating you as his child? He loves you, and he's warring for you. He's warring with you, and part of that warring with you is being willing to be honest and say, this needs to be corrected. This needs to be refined. This needs to be adjusted. It's a long-term investment. Do you see that in the second half, verse 11? It says, later it yields the peaceful fruit. Later, not now, it'll take time. Later it yields fruit. And see, this is the beautiful thing. Parenting is a long-term investment. And God will never quit on you. Isn't that good news? He will never quit on you. Why? If you have trusted in Jesus, you are his child. And you might be difficult, you might be stubborn, you might complain, and you leave your shoes at the door instead of in the closet where they belong. But your God never quits on you. Because that's my son. That's my child. He's my boy. She's my girl. And I will never stop fighting for you. But I love you so much. I'm not going to let you walk out into the street. That's dangerous. I'm, I'm going I'm to tell you that, you know what? You need to be careful with your friends. 
Be holy. Guard your eyes, your heart, your mind, and your ears. Your Heavenly Father loves you so much, He cannot help but show you and teach you the truth. God is treating you as sons. So submit yourself under your loving Father. Run the race. Endure. Fight the fight. In closing, again, I read another Puritan, which, by the way, I say Puritans a lot. That's a hint. You should read Puritans. They're great. This is what Richard Elaine says. It is true my heart wars against you. It riots and rebels against you. But do I resign myself to it? Is it a pleasure to me? Am I at peace with it? Lord, you know I cannot rid myself of the iniquity in my heart. I cannot do the things that I would. I cannot pray as I would. I cannot listen as I would, nor think, nor speak, nor live as I would. Wherever I go, sin goes with me. Where I stay, it stays. If, it's, if I sit still, there it is with me. If I run from it, it follows me. I cannot rest. I cannot work. I cannot do anything. Sin is always hounding me. And yet, blessed be your name. This I do. I fight against it. I wrestle with it. Though it so often takes me down, I do not trust it, though it flatters me. I do not love it, though it feeds me. My heart is with you, Lord. I am following after you. I groan and I struggle in pain, waiting for your redemption until I die. But I will not give up. I will die fighting. I will die hoping. I will die praying. Save me, Lord. Do not delay my God. Save me, your child. Amen. Heavenly Father, with such devotion, may we run this race. May we not despise the discipline of the Lord or his reproof, for you are treating us as your sons, your children. If there is someone here who has not put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and are not a child of God, then they don't have the hope that I just talked about. And I pray they would come talk with me, one of the pastors up here at the front after the service, so that they might be saved. Not that we save them, not that we can affect that, but we can show them from your word, O oh God, how they might have hope and life in Christ alone. Help us as a people, your people who are your children, to run this race. Thank you for the example that you've given. Thank you for the fight that you fight for us and with us. Thank you that you love us so much that you point out in grace our flaws. Thank you that you never give up on us. Thank you that you run with us to the end. Help us to fight this fight, run this race. May you be glorified in it. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.